Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, please continue this discussion on theafrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Now, how many of you have heard stories from your elders, verified those stories, and written a novel? Well, Go Stand Upon the Rock is a deeply moving Civil War era novel based on stories handed down by Sam Lemon's grandmother, about the lives of her grandparents who were once runaway slaves from Virginia. The book is supported by historical and genealogical research, photographs, and documents from his doctoral dissertation. It is a compelling and emotionally engaging history that comes alive through the lives of real people and events. Dr. Samuel Michael Lemon grew up in Media, Pennsylvania, where his maternal great-great-grandparents arrived as runaway slaves during the Civil War. He is currently an assistant professor and the director of a graduate program at Newman University in Pennsylvania, and formerly worked in the fields of social services, education, and public TV at WHYY in Philadelphia. So let me give a warm welcome to author Dr. Samuel Michael Lemon to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Lemon. Oh, Bernice, thank you so much uh, for, for the wonderful introduction. Um, 
I, you, you, you make me see, <laughs> seem like such a wonderful person. I'd really like to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling you, after, after reading your book, I want to meet you and shake your hand. I love this book. I just love it. So oh, well, I, I want you, Samuel, yes, just please tell us what it was like to have your grandmother share stories with you about your ancestors. Well, it was absolutely wonderful. And, and uh, you know, like a lot of folks, uh, you know, who, who live with their grandmothers or, or, you know, saw their grandmothers often, um, I, I just um, absorbed this information, uh, the, this, this oral history that was passed down uh, to me. Uh, I just loved it. And, and I grew to, to love these, these people. They, they were almost like mythical heroes uh, to me. Uh, but even better, they were real. And uh, the, the wonderful thing about oral history is, is that you can leap generations. So, you know, here I am, her grandson, and she's telling me about the lives of her grandparents. And uh, it, it was just such an absorbing story. Uh, I felt at a very uh, young age um, that I wanted to really do them justice and, and tell their story someday. And, and uh, that's uh, the, the genesis for why I decided to write the book. Right. Well, you have done them just justice. So now... Uh, you have an interesting title to your book. Go stand up on the rock. Tell us what does this mean? Well, uh, it, it draws on, on a couple of uh, different sources. One, um, the uh, old spiritual, uh, "Oh Mary, don't you weep; Oh Martha, don't you moan." Um, and uh, there, there's a, a phrase in there that um, you know, uh, "Go stand upon the rock." And um, a lot of the, the, the story has uh, an element of uh, religion and, and belief systems uh, running through it. So, um, and a lot of the characters drew, drew strength, uh, you know, in order to overcome the, the almost inhuman challenges that they sometimes had to, had to overcome uh, by drawing on, on, on their faith. Um, it, it also um, uh, it implies um, the, the practice of, of slaves having to stand on an auction block. And you know, being uh, sold there like a like a commodity, like a, a cow or a, a piece of uh, furniture. Um, and, and then the the, the third piece uh, of it was um, there's an old expression that uh, if we can see farther today, it's because we're standing on the shoulders of giants who came before us. So it also implies that sense of, of foundation of, of those that long line of ancestors, some of whom we know, some of whom uh, we may not know, but uh, are, are living today still inside of us. You are so right. They are. And this is the foundation. You, you, you put it so well. So set us up. Help us understand where does this story begin? And then take us through some events and some key players that have an impact on the lives of your ancestors. Well, you know, the, the, the story in, in some ways uh, is, is my response to uh, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, that, that was, that was a, it was an iconic book and, and film, and, uh, you know, everyone loved Clark Gable, and, and uh, you know, it was very, very grand. And, and actually, uh, my understanding is that uh, she based her, her novel uh, on stories that her grandmother, her grandparents told her about their lives in the Civil War. But, but I, I felt that there was a great deal uh, lacking uh, there. And there was another side of the story that, that really needed to be told. Um, I, I also wanted to tell a story in which there were a few clear heroes or, or villains. 
uh, you know, mostly multifaceted people struggling with powerful events uh, that, that challenge their, their principles. So I, I didn't want to present, you know, all black people is good and all white people is bad or all northern is good and all black and, and all, all southerners is bad. I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to um, present people as, uh, you know, complex human beings. Um, I, I also wanted to take a look at slavery um, in, a, in, a different, in a different light. Uh, Dr. James uh, Horton, a very famous uh, African-American uh, scholar and, and educator, said that slavery was a relationship between human beings. And, and I wanted to, to delve into that, uh, you know, in terms of uh, not just the, the interpersonal relationship or, or a relationship of an owner and, and his, his property, uh, but also biological uh, relationships, which was certainly the case of my, my great-great-grandfather, Cornelius, uh, whose, whose father was uh, also his master. Um, there, there are other aspects of, of the sort of interpersonal, uh, psychological, emotional relationships between uh, slaves and, and the people who, who enslaved them. And, and oftentimes slaves uh, played uh, uh, just an incredible uh, and invaluable role within white families uh, that owned them. Uh, they often were, were the nursemaids. They would take care of the sick children or sometimes the elderly or, or, or the sickly adults. Uh, sometimes slave women would, would nurse the white babies right along with, with nursing their, their own babies. Uh, and sometimes, you know, older uh, uh, slaves, male and female, uh, would play kind of an avuncular uh, role, uh, sort of an aunt or uncle uh, to young white children. And oftentimes the, the children would listen to them more than they would listen to their actual parents. So, you know, I, I wanted to kind of dig into to, to some of these uh, uh, types of relationships and, and some of the, the psychological issues, you know, that, that were part of that. Um, along with that, I wanted to explore uh, belief systems, not not just in terms of uh, you know Christianity, which which certainly is a key theme uh, that that underpins the book, uh, but also alternative belief systems and and, and folk uh, folk uh, religions. Um, you know, in, in my family, um, and, and I won't get to this character much until you know in, in the sequel. But uh, Josefa um, uh, Constancia uh, Phillips, who was the uh, my great grandmother who married uh, my great-grandfather, William Henry Ridley, at the end of the novel. Well, she came from the Danish West Indies, and although she was a devout Lutheran uh, her entire life, she also held island beliefs uh, with her as well. And, and that all became a part of, of my family's sort of uh, complex and, and compound uh, belief systems. Um, you know, kind of rounding things out, I also wanted to, to tell some of the story of the U.S. colored troops. Uh, you know, there were over 180,000 uh, black soldiers and sailors uh, who were really some of the finest, uh, you know, in, in the entire Civil War. Uh, the, the, the white officers who commanded them uh, just were, were amazed at, at how courageous and how skilled uh, and how dependable and resolute uh, these soldiers were. And, you know, living in suburban uh, Philadelphia, um, my ancestor, along with, uh, you know, 11,000 other uh, black soldiers, were trained at Camp William Penn in the Cheltenham uh, Hill section right outside of Philadelphia. So I, I wanted to touch upon uh, their lives because they were fighting two battles. Uh, you know, they, they were fighting the Civil War, but they were also fighting for equality and, and, and freedom and to be recognized uh, not as black soldiers, but as soldiers. And um, they, they faced a, a different set of rules of war uh, on the battlefield, unlike their white counterparts, uh, you know, because, as, as you know, with the Fort Pillow massacre and, and, and other incidents, uh, black soldiers were, were generally not allowed to surrender on the battlefield. They were usually executed right on the spot because they were considered to being uh, traitors and, and insurrectionists. Um, and so they, they had a very, um, you know, a, a very different, uh, you know, perspective and reality uh, for them. Uh, on the battlefield. 
Um, so, so in general, you know, I, I think history is, is best understood by looking through the eyes of real people and real families. So, so again, yeah. this, this is not ancient history. It's, it's really family history. And, and probably the, the broad canvas that all this is painted on is the story of me finding my way back home. And, uh, you know, when I was, was a 10-year-old boy, you know, listening to my grandma tell all these amazing stories. And we were very fortunate to have a lot of vintage photographs, some of which are in the book, and, and there'll be more uh, in the sequel. Um, but all she could ever tell me was the names of the plantations. She didn't know where they were located. Nobody in my family uh, had ever been back to Southampton and, and Sussex counties in Virginia, um, you know, after my ancestors fled. So, you know, part of it was kind of a, an ethnographic detective story uh, for me, sort of, you know, piecing, uh, you know, these, these poultry clues together, find my way back home and, and visit uh, those plantations. And it was a, the, the goal and uh, the achievement of a lifetime for me. Right. And I want to hear more about that, but I, I want you to just tell us where was the plantation located? Mm -hmm. And what did you find out about the plantation as far as the number of slaves on this plantation and who owned the plantation? Okay. Well, the Bonnie Doom plantation, and that's the, the plantation uh, that um, uh, Cornelius, uh, you know, my great-great-grandfather uh, came from, uh, is uh, right outside of Cape Ron, uh, Virginia. Um, uh, it was originally called, um, uh, you know, Cortland uh, actually is the, the county seat. It was originally called Jerusalem uh, back in uh, those days. But Thomas Ridley was one of the wealthiest uh, planters, uh, if not the entire south, south, certainly in Virginia. He owned over 300 slaves. Now, the average southerner um, didn't own slaves, uh, actually, and, and those that did own five or fewer. So for someone to own, you know, 300 slaves, uh, it's just uh, astonishing. Um, now, now, the valuation of slaves, as they called it, uh, could run anywhere from, you know, on, on the high end, you know, young, strong males uh, or, or, you know, males with uh, skills like carpenters or, or wheelwrights. They might be worth uh, $1,200 or $1,500 uh, in 1860 dollars. Um, and then women would be worth uh, less than that and, and children less than that. And I came across uh, one notation of um, a slave owned by uh, John Y. Mason, who, who actually owned Martha Jane on the Fortsville plantation. Um, and and so he had her listed as worth zero. And, and you know, it broke my heart when, when I saw that, that, you know, how could a human being who probably worked all her life for this man, how could she be worth zero? Now that, you know, she, she couldn't pick, uh, you know, a ton of cotton for him where she couldn't do all the, the hard labor out in the fields that uh, she did at one time. So, um, again, the plantations were uh, Bonnie Dune, which I, I had the, the opportunity to visit uh, back in 1998. Uh, when I returned to Southampton County, uh, the building had fallen down. So I actually got one of the probably one of the final uh, photographs of that. And about 100 yards from uh, the, the mansion house in Bonnie Dune was Buckhorn Quarters. And that was the name of the slave quarters, and uh, that's probably where Cornelius lived or was born. And um, that was where uh, Nat Turner visited uh, in 1831, as he was uh, roaming uh, around Southampton County trying to get slaves uh, uh, to enlist slaves to his cause. Now, uh, my great great grandmother Martha Jean Parham uh, lived on the plantation of John Y. Mason. Um, he um, had two plantations, one there in Sussex, right on the border of Sussex and Ham Southampton, and another in Coahoma County, uh, Mississippi. Uh, he, he was not the financial wizard, apparently, that the, the Ridleys were, 
and uh, because he was a uh, one-time U.S. Secretary of State. Uh, he was also um, a minister to France. He spent a great deal of time there. Uh, he really kind of spent beyond his means. So he had to sell off a lot of his slaves and, and rent them out periodically. And uh, when I did find um, a look at the slave schedule for, um, you know, 18... Um, uh, 50, there was a, a black female age 10 who would have been, you know, the, the precise age of my ancestor. Uh, I, you know, I can't say positively that was her, but uh, as with Cornelius, who shows up on the 1850 and 1860 slave schedules as, as one of the few mulattoes owned by uh, uh, Thomas Ridley, they, they were at the right time, at the right place in history with the, with the right the racial designation. Um, the, the, the other thing, and, and a very moving piece for me was... Um, uh, as a boy, my grandmother just told me right off the bat, um, you know, that, that her grandmother had been a breeding woman uh, on the plantation. And I didn't need to ask her what that meant. I knew intuitively exactly what that meant. Um, and so Martha Jean had, had a pretty traumatic experience uh, in, in the years of her life uh, as a slave. Um, in contrast to her husband, Cornelius, who, who said he was actually treated pretty well. Um, but I guess that was because he, he looked like the Ridleys. Uh, he had red hair, green eyes, and, and skin so white that when he decided to escape, he was able to walk 300 miles north to media. And uh, no one ever stopped him because everyone he met assumed he was a white man. Um, but uh, something that Dr. Hobbs and, and the, the, the program a couple of weeks ago were talking about passing. Um, you know, here's an example of a guy passing to escape from slavery, which was, was a pretty pretty smart and resourceful thing. But when he arrived up here in the North, someone once asked him, um, Mr. Ridley, are you white or Negro? And he said, I go for both. So I, I thought, you know, for, for someone in the late 1800s to, to have that kind of uh, sense of self in terms of, uh, you know, uh, ethnic and, and racial designation, I, I thought was, uh, was pretty progressive at the time. Yes, it, it certainly was pretty progressive at the time. Well, you you said a whole lot, but but one thing you you said, and I I can't help but say that when I read about your great grandmother as a breeder, it it really brought tears to me. I I felt e emotionally just pain for what she went through, and so she did something though, and you. You brought out uh, the character Mama Rue. Yes. And I would like you to tell us about Mama Rue and what Martha Jane did mm -hmm. and um, what well, advice you know, she was given. I, 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 just, I just want you to just share that story with us. Absolutely. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that you know, it was deeply moving to read. It was deeply moving for you to write. Um, and and there, were, there were a couple of passages in the books that, that the readers have told me that, you know, uh, you know, brought tears to their eyes. And, and, and the same occurred to me uh, when, I, when I was writing uh, the story. Uh, when, I, when I sat down and realized what some of these people had gone through, uh, it, it did bring tears uh, to my eyes. And uh, even when I've gone back and, and reread, uh, uh, you know, some, some uh, passages. But um, the, the, the character of Mamaru um, is probably one of the few characters who is not based on an actual uh, specific person, but uh, much likewise with, with Uncle Robert. But they're kind of archetypal characters. They're, they're people who actually existed at that time and were really revered because of their wisdom. Uh, a character like Mamaru would probably serve as a, a midwife 
uh, oftentimes uh, helped delivering babies on the plantation. Uh, she probably also served as kind of like a psychologist uh, and psychiatrist in terms of, uh, you know, helping young women and, and you know, perhaps some young men too. Um, you know, kind of find coping mechanisms to, to deal with the, 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 the really horrible things uh, in life. Um, people like her also, um, and traditionally throughout history, uh, women, um, uh, you know, have been often considered very wise. And then, in fact, I think that's where the witch, the, the term witch comes from, was wise women. And that really, really uh, was originally about, you know, women who were very wise and knew how to use medicinal herbs and, and, and you know, understood, the, you know, the, the frailties of the mind and, and how, to, how to heal people on the inside and on the outside. And so, um, you know, I, I had her sort of taking this... Um, uh, parental, uh, kind of a sister-mother role uh, with Martha Jean and, and probably having gone through something similar herself to, to give Martha Jean, you know, a, a sense of self and, and strength and to a, you know, accept the reality of her life, which, you know, was not going to change unless she was able to, to escape, but also to find some coping me- mechanisms. And, and the, the, the scene of, of Goliath, where, where Martha Jane gets to turn the tables on him, um, I think is really not that far out of the, the, the reach of possibility. And uh, I wanted to show that, that women did have strength. And, and if you read, um, uh, you know, books like um, uh, John Hope Franklin's Rebels on the Plantations, Slaves were not just passive victims. They fought back in, in every possible way they could. And so, uh, you know, someone like a Mama Ru had great uh, wisdom to, to, to pass on to, uh, to a younger woman uh, like Martha Jane, much like Uncle Robert, who, uh, you know, uh, another archetypal character, um, you know, an elder, you know, wise man, uh, you know, who could share his wisdom and, and knowledge with, with younger people. Um, because I think one of the things that slavery did in breaking up families was, was it, it created new models of families. So people weren't necessarily related by blood, but they're related by bond and they're related by love and, and how they cared about each other. And I think that that's, you know, kind of the sense of family that really helped uh, uh, people like Cornelius and Martha Jean, um, you know, uh, uh, sustain uh, their, 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 their sanity and, and their, their sense of self and, uh, and under some pretty difficult situations. Right. So, I mean, they had very difficult situations. Even uh, Cornelia uh, grew up with, without his mother. And, yeah. and, and indeed, as I, I recall in reading the book, Cornelia's mother was also a breeder. Am I correct? Well, I, I kind of left her uh, very mysterious because he said he, he never knew his mother. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and this, this idea of, you know, things like paternity and, and maternity are, are, are taken for granted today. But, you know, who our fathers are or who our mothers are or who our substitute fathers or substitute mothers are or who our families are, you know, you know uh, biological or adopted, whatever, they, they all contribute to, to our identity and, 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 and who we are as human beings. So that was one of the horrors, uh, one, one of the great injustices of slavery, that it took that away from people. And, um, you know, in Martha Jane's case, uh, we don't know how many children she had. We, we, we do believe that she had more than the two she escaped with. But, um, you know, in Cornelius's uh, case, uh, his mother, um, you know, I, I didn't want to write a lot about her because I really didn't know. But, uh, you know, oftentimes, as I explained sort of, you know, in other passages, uh, you know, women like her would have, um, uh, you know, uh, just automatically be, be taken as concubines and, and uh, 
you know, uh, sexual partners and, and that type of thing. And and I wanted to, to really sort of bring out that, that side of sexual slavery that really isn't covered. That's kind of overlooked oftentimes. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, have the role models from, from like the film and, and the book Roots and, you know, you see the whippings and things like that. And that was absolutely horrible. But there was another whole side to, to the kind of, you know, torture and, and barbarism that, that was inflicted on uh, slaves and women in particular. And, and I wanted to get that message across, uh, uh, you know, uh, really loud and clear in this novel. Yes, and and you do get it across. It's you know it's it's one of these books where although you you hear about uh, women and hitting a certain point in their lives, the young girls where indeed they they have to become breeders, they have no choice. But it is certainly a, a very heartbreaking situation to to read it and see it and understand. The, the brutality of what life is like when she has to keep having babies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that also, you know, uh, the, the, the institution of slavery left an indelible, uh, indelible mark on, on American society and, and particularly struggles with, with African-Americans. And, and so I also wanted to kind of get across in the story how powerless Cornelius must have felt that he could not protect his wife you know, from, from this type of abuse and, and, you know, with families being broken up and, and, and you see some of those, some, some of that really negative, horrible legacy, uh, passed down, uh, you know, to uh, African-American families and, and subsequent, uh, uh, generations. And, um, you know, I, again, I, it was just a, an important part of the story. I think the primary characters in the story really are women, even more so than, than, than many of the men. And I, I think that, uh, they're really the glue that holds the entire story together. Right. And there's a question coming out of the chat room. Uh, what did you feel was the strength of character for Cornelius uh, that helped him escape slavery? And I know we're kind of jumping to him mm -hmm. escaping slavery, but mm -hmm. I, I want you to just take your time and kind of lay out what's going on uh, on this plantation because Cornelia doesn't escape slavery immediately. He's Correct. there and then something happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think in some ways you know, he, he was sort of a uh, a, a person with a, a man with no country or, or, or maybe in some ways a child of two worlds, uh, you know, uh, because he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he clearly said that his father was his master. Uh, and we believe that to be uh, Colonel Thomas Ridley uh, the third, uh, very very distinguished Virginian. Uh, uh, Thomas Ridley's uh, grandfather fought at the Battle of Brandywine uh, here at the, in Pennsylvania during the Revolution. So so uh, Cornelius's job on the plantation was that of a carriage driver. So I would say you know probably on the the, the scale of uh, you know the, the hierarchy of of jobs uh, on the plantation, and no slave had any say in what job he or she was going to do. And then that was kind of one of the myths that I sort of wanted to debunk that, oh, well, some slaves, you know, probably had it easier than others. In different ways, perhaps, yes. But if you worked in, in the big house, you were a lot more at risk of, you know, uh, raising the ire, often through no fault of your own, of the master or the master's wife. Uh, and um, so, I, so I think Cornelius was sort of this emblem 
for you know these these southerners who felt you know that they were somewhat enlightened and and uh, you know here we have this 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 young slave that you know we we treat well and we give him clothes and, and he has this very uh, prestigious job um, and Cornelius was very fortunate in that regard because the average slave only traveled about five miles from home in the course in the entire course of his or her lifetime. So for Cornelius to be the equivalent of, say, like a chauffeur driver today, a limo driver today, to be able to travel far and wide, you know, by himself to go pick people up and bring them back to the plantation and and, and have that geographic knowledge, that was invaluable uh, to him. But I think he also must have felt very conflicted because, um, you know, he, he, he wasn't a member, uh, legally uh, a, a member of, of the family, um, and he couldn't sort of have... Uh, you know, the, the same opportunities that had he been born white, had he been born, you know, free, uh, you know, he could have gone to like Virginia Military Institute, a very prestigious military institution in Virginia, like his father and his grandfather before him. Um, and so he, he his, his future in life really was very, very limited. Um, and, um, you know, he probably would, would not be able to pick someone like him because, you know, the, the mulatto women were always, you know, kind of snatched up uh, by the masters and the overseers and, and, uh, you know, he, um, he, you know, he, he met Martha Jane somewhere, and um, my grandmother told me that she said the first time she saw laid her eyes upon him, she knew he was the man for her, and uh, there was apparently this this this, this spark between the two of them, and uh, they they just had this this deep uh, lifelong uh, love. Uh, for each other, and uh, despite you know her being on one plantation and then him being on the other, and her having to be a breeding woman and and him having to accept that, uh, it was I, I think it's kind of a really remarkable love story in many ways. Yes, it it is a remarkable love story, and we're going to take a quick break. Come back so that you can right. continue to take us through uh, the journey of of what happened with. Martha Jane and Cornelius. So, quick break. Wonderful. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast 
immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questioning. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, just call in 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. I will call out your area code and you will be live. You have been listening to Dr. Samuel Michael Lemon. Share his story. Go stand up on the rock. And Samuel, there is a, a, a question. There are two questions coming out of the chat room. What is the process of going from historical fact to turning an ancestral story into a historical novel? That's a great question. Um, one of the reasons why um, my my primary goal or literary goal uh, in life was always to, to write the story of my ancestors, to, to, to tell their, their history. Um, but before doing that, I decided to, to get a doctorate first. And, and, and the reason being is that I wanted to, to uh, acquire a, a body of, uh, you know, uh, factual, uh, you know, research gathered uh, information um, to, to lay the groundwork for, for the story because, uh, you know, what my grandmother told me was, was family history, you know, uh, interpreted through our, our particular you know, perspective or our family uh, viewpoint. Um, and so she kind of gave me the, the, the broad lines of information. Um, interestingly enough, everything my grandmother ever told me has turned out to be true. <laughs> So, you know, oral history is remarkably accurate, um, but I, I had to, to, to do a lot of uh, uh, legwork, a lot of research to, to find out, well, what was going on at the time? Uh, you know, what, what were people talking about? How were people living? Um, so, you know, in, in the book, uh, when I talk about crops, when I talk about the weather, when I talk about, the, 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 you know, the comet showers, those are all, you know, absolutely verifiable, documented uh, situations. Um, in the chapter with the gentleman from New Orleans, when he's talking with Colonel Ridley about how to hide his money from, from the Yankees and foreign banks, all of those foreign banks and institutions were in existence uh, in, at that time. I made you know sure to, to verify that. And um, I think as you and I were chatting uh, on the phone the other day in terms of um, you knew that I had been to New Orleans because the way I wrote that chapter, you know, talking about walking from here to here, there and, and you know, uh, Madame LeBeau. Talking and, about and, the Gordon uh, District. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I, I was telling the truth, so yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to I wanted to tell a, a very very accurate story because you know even though about seventy five percent of the story is based on real people and actual events, the other twenty five percent is a good guess, is an educated mm -hmm. guess on on my part, um, and uh, so so I wanted to do that research first. Um, so that that way, you know, people wouldn't perceive my book as, as purely a, as a novel, purely as, you know, uh, sort, sort of a, a fantasy. Um, well, one of the things that I also wanted to include was, was the role of American Indians in the South, because that's something, you know, few people ever talk about or include. And they, they played an integral role, and, and they did mix with slaves, and they did know slaves. And so I, I wanted to, you know, include as much factual information as possible, but then have some literary license to, you know, uh, um, you know, sort of, sort of tie this tapestry all together. Also, Hello? there's a, yes, there's also another question, and it you 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 pretty much answered it. But I mean, was there a process that you really looked at the historical facts in your flowing narrative? 
so that we could understand, okay, during this period of time, the Civil War was taking place and word was spreading throughout the plantation uh, that a war was happening, the change was mm -hmm. going to come. Uh, how did you just, you know, share with the, with the listeners how all of this took place? Um, well, I, uh, you know, some of the research I, I took from other books, uh, you know, books on the Underground Railroad, uh, Susie King Taylor, uh, an African-American woman at the, at the time who had been a former slave, has a book uh, that's uh, been out, uh, you know, for, for well over 100 years. I read that, you know, to find out, you know, tidbits of, of things uh, to glean from her life to make sure that, you know, Martha Jane's life would have been, you know, uh, you know in the same ballpark uh, with, with that. Um, the um, information about the U.S. Uh, colored troops that went to regimental histories, and I read exactly what, you know, those regiments reported and, and that type of thing. Um, so, uh, and, and even the, the aspect of uh, that some slaves were able to escape. And, and again, only about 50,000 of the 4 million slaves held in bondage at the time of the Civil War escaped. So, you know, 50,000 might sound like a lot, but that was really only about 2%. So, so those who escaped were, were, were incredibly lucky and, and, and incredibly strong and, uh, and, and courageous. But the idea that you could actually escape, if you could make it to the Union Army lines, and, and this was, um, this was a, a policy that was uh, developed by um, uh, Union General Benjamin Butler, um, because early in the war, if slaves escaped, they were returned to their, to their masters. But he decided, you know, why are we doing this? You know, I mean, a slave, uh, say, worth uh, $1,500 in $1,860 um, would be worth like $30,000 today. So, you know, he came up with the idea with, no, we're not going to send that back. That's just going to continue to enrich the South. I mean, we want to impoverish the South. We want to take away their resources. So that's a very accurate representation of how some, some slaves are actually able to, to escape by making it to the Union Army lines, and then they would not send you back. And uh, my grandmother did tell me that her grandmother did carry water uh, for the Union troops and did laundry and, and that type of thing. So I, I had some, you know, some, some a bold outline, a clear outline to work on. And then I just kind of fleshed it in with, with the, the historical data that supported it. Right, right. Well, take us through the, the, a scene in your book, if you will, where Cornelia is is ready to leave. He's running away. But the mistress of the home, Mrs. Yeah. Ripley, uh, is aware of this. And just mm -hmm. take us through what happened. Yeah, that was that was a very moving scene. Um when he uh, when he decided to to escape and and kind of saying goodbye to uh, you know the the other slaves uh, on the on the property, um, I, I wanted to and and she she's a good example of of how I wanted to realistically uh, portray uh, some of the Southerners because many Southerners knew that slavery was wrong um, and and as Thomas Jefferson said it was kind of like holding a wolf by the ears like how do you let go and and so. Um, you know, a, a lot of women, and I, I think, you know, certainly, you know, enlightened men, you know, probably, you know, saw, saw slavery for, for what it really was. Um, but uh, she she had to, or, you know, had been touched by Cornelius's uh, loyalty and, and connection to, to the family. 
Um, and so I have her as a character that, that sort of has kind of a change of heart in, in terms of the, the whole issue and, and recognizes the value and, uh, you know, uh, and the humanity of Cornelius and the other slaves, uh, you know, when she was, you know, giving him money and saying, uh, you, you know, uh, take this, you, you deserve more and, and you all deserve better. Um, the 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 blunderbuss is actually something he he really did have when he arrived up here. So uh, that that was just a little historical tidbit that that I put in there. Um, but um, that that's a very moving scene, and and the character of, of Big Man, who who only speaks one word in the entire uh, book. Um, writing that really kind of kind of choked me up because I'm, I'm sure that there were uh, relationships uh, like that, uh, you know, deep bonds. Uh, you know, between slaves and, and, and uh, between the slaves. The, the other thing, yes. I, and I wanted to, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with you. It, <laughs> it was a scene. I mean, I, I said, oh, this is so touching and it's so sad, but you saw the humanity in Mrs. Ridley yeah. as she gave him money. She knew he was running away. And yep. she didn't try to stop him. And mm-hmm. it, it was a very, very moving uh, scene to, to know that he was getting ready to, to leave. And not mm-hmm. only to leave the people he knew, but to leave his, his wife. Absolutely. Uh, and his entire family, you know, uh, that whole community of slaves uh, there. And, uh, and and as in real life, uh, you know, his, his sister was sold to, to someone in uh uh, New Orleans or Louisiana, and he never saw or heard from her again. So uh, he, he lost a lot, but but he, he gained a lot in terms of his freedom. And after a couple of years, uh, you know, reuniting uh, with Martha Jean and her two children here in the north. Why? Well, now you did bring in the Underground Railroad, yes. and you also spoke of the the role that the Quaker community played. So talk a little bit about this so that individuals can see how you put in other details. He didn't just walk away and disappear. Yes, yes. Well, you know, one of the problems with the Underground Railroad is that it works so well, <laughs> you know, that, that there, there, there aren't a whole lot of existing records. Um, you know, um, the... Um, uh, you know, even the the book um, uh, Underground Railroad um, that was written by the by well, the secretary uh, of the Underground Railroad, um, he didn't write that until I don't know seven or ten years uh, afterwards. So it, it was it was a system. It was a remarkable system that that was very successful because secrecy was the utmost. So um, a lot of participants in the Underground Railroad didn't know other people. They they didn't know the the entire network. All they knew was the next person on the stop. So uh, when I was in Southampton doing research, um, you know, there, there is or was a, the building is still there, a Blackwater Friends meeting uh, there. And, and Quakers were very instrumental uh, in, in helping runaway slaves. Um, you know, Thomas Garrett, who, who was a, um, a white abolitionist, uh, originally from Upper Darby, uh, Pennsylvania, who moved to Wilmington, Delaware, he uh, supported the, the Underground Railroad movement and, and Harriet Tubman um, a great deal financially. And oftentimes Quakers would, would go down to the South and they would, uh, uh, you know, pretend to be slave buyers and um, they would, uh, you know, buy slaves at, at auction and then, uh, you know, spirit them up uh, here uh, to, to the North. Um, the, the Quakers were also very instrumental in um, 
supporting the U.S. colored troops. And so there, there's a chapter, you know, uh, about that and, and how, uh, you know, white Quakers uh, contributed financially, uh, you know, to, to the raising of the, the U.S. colored troops uh, as well. When Cornelius first arrived here in Pennsylvania, uh, the first people who took him in uh, were uh, Isaac um, and Elizabeth Smedley Yarnell, uh, who were Quakers of my Quaker meeting today. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, uh, history is a circle in some ways and, and, uh, you know, uh, repeating itself, but, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the combination of William Still, who, who actually is buried, uh, just, uh, about 30 yards from Cornelius in Eden Cemetery, uh, in, uh, in, uh, Collingdale, Pennsylvania, uh, William Still, Thomas Garrett and Harriet Tubman, uh, were just this incredible triumvirate. Um, and, and, I, and I think it also shows that, you know, we, we get farther by collaborating with people who are different from us, uh, that whether we're white or black or blotto or, you know, whatever ethnic mix or, or religious mix you are, uh, you know, underneath it all, we're all members of the same human family. And if we work together, we survive. And, and if we don't work together one by one, we're all going to perish. Right, right. And so at one, at, at a point, as you have put in your book, Mary, Jane, and Cornelius do reunite. Yes. And then the war is over, and then what happens to them? Well, uh, what happens is uh, they, they um, first were, were living uh, with the Quakers, and then uh, they moved out and, and got a little place uh, of their own that, that they rented. And then a few years, uh, one of the things that they did, by the way, was they got officially married. Um, now, they did have a slave marriage in the South, which was, you know, traditionally jumping the broom, um, but, but that, that had no legal bearing and, and certainly initially no legal bearing among the slave owners. But when they, when they got to the North, they, they wanted to be, you know, really solid members of the community, just like everybody else. So they got married. Um, they were among the founders of our local uh, Campbell um, AME church. Uh, you know, religion was, was very uh, important to them. And uh, they bought a little house uh, back in 1872, right across the street from the church. And uh, that, that house was in my family for 100 years. And uh, uh, seven generations of us uh, lived in that house. Um, I still have the original doorknob. I still have the deed. Uh, I still had dreams about that house, uh, you know, which is, is uh, the, the picture in the prologue. Uh, their book, and um, they they became uh, you know very uh, um, you know uh, rec uh, res um, highly um, respected members of the community. And as you know in the book, uh, the, their son um, William became first African American attorney in our county uh, in 1891. Uh, he graduated from local uh, media high school in 1887, and then studied law. And uh, he was a practicing attorney for 54 years. So between 19, uh, I'm sorry, between um, uh, 1891 and 1970, there were, had only been three African American members of the Delaware County Bar Association, the Association of Attorneys in Delaware County. Uh, and in 1970, we got our first black judge. So he, he was quite a pioneer. Now, when he died in 1949, um, uh, the uh, Bar Association held a, a special session in the county courthouse to, to, to honor him. And um, as you know, in, in the book, um, uh, I um, have just a tidbit of, of that resolution, um, which um, you know says uh, William H. Ridley was born in the borough of Media, the son of Cornelius Ridley and Martha, his wife, highly respected residents of the said borough. Cornelius Ridley was born and reared as a slave in Virginia, and during or following the Civil War, 
moved to media where he was employed for years by Samuel W. Hawley and later Hawley and Snowden hardware merchants. No man stood higher in the estimation of the people of the county than Cornelius Ridley. So I, I think that's that's quite a testament to a, a guy who was born in a slave cabin who never knew his mother uh, and, and, and escaped that, that former life. It is quite a testament indeed, quite a testament. Well, how did it feel? Now, I know you, you went back to Virginia, to the plantation. Tell us how did it feel to go back to the community where your ancestors were enslaved? Uh, you know, I, I had really mixed feelings. Uh, it, it was very exciting. Um, I, I found the, the plantation through the help of a, a distant relative, Morgan Muncy, who was an architect in, in New York. His ancestor was also a slave of the Ridleys, and I believe that his ancestor was Cornelius's paternal uncle. Uh, I'm sorry, maternal uncle. Um, and so when we visited, um, you know, we, we, we go down the driveway and, and here's this really kind of spooky old looking mansion with the windows are broken out and it's, the roof is sagging. And uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend in 1998 and, and the wind was blowing and it was making this really strange, um, uh, eerie sound through the grass. And, and, and we, we walked around and, and, and each of us felt, um, uh, you know, a uh, very, very strange feeling like we were being watched. And, and we didn't realize that until later when we got in the car and, and on the road home right home we were talking about it but it was a very eerie uh feeling and uh, it was very unsettling um to, to think of you know that my ancestor um was a slave here uh you know uh, uh for for probably the, for the first 20 years or so uh, of his life so um i remember the, the, the you know when i when i got home and and uh the, the later that night and and um i woke up crying the next morning i mean just just completely out of the blue i, I I just mm -hmm. woke up in tears, and, and it was the emotional impact of, of that really uh, really hit me, um, that, that these, these were my people, these were my family, and, um, uh, you know, I feel as close to them as, as any living relative. Um, and, in fact, Cornelius and, and, and Martha Jane and, and uh, my great-grandfather, uh, William, the, the attorney, um, I, I, I always considered them, them to be like my parents, you know, and my, my, my grandparents, not, not distant ancestors. And I always wanted to, to make them feel proud of me. And so I, I feel their, their love today. And I feel like I am, whatever I've accomplished in life is because of my grandmother and because of, you know, my ancestors that came before her. So on the one hand, it was exciting. On the other hand, it was very sad. Oh, yes. I, I just can't imagine that feeling and, and waking up the next morning in tears. It, 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 it certainly um, was an emotional um, experience for you. Well, we do have a question coming in, and it's okay. uh, from area code 856. You're live, area code 856. You have a question or a comment? Yes, I do. Uh, good evening, Miss uh, Miss uh, Bennett, and also uh, Dr. Lemon. Uh, this is your brother calling in. Uh, excellent uh, interview. Uh, I'm also uh, a fellow author, but I just um, wanted to comment. Um, I shared a similar experience uh, with Dr. Lemon uh, when I got out of the car because I was on that um, trip, kind of like a, a reunion, uh, if you will, trip. And uh, there were some very, very interesting uh, similarities. I think one of the um, first things that stood out in my mind was the route that one of the plantations was on was the exact address 
of um, the house that Cornelius uh, and Martha Jane lived in. Was that right, Dr. Lemon? Yes, it was uh, actually Route 308. That's uh, you're right. Uh, it's near the, the county prison, uh, uh, just outside of. Um, of um, uh, I was going to say Jerusalem, but that was the uh, the old old name of uh, Cortland. Yeah, so that was that was uh, one thing that was very interesting, uh, very odd coincidence. And uh, another thing, when I got out of the car and just started walking around on the land, I, I was just something just stopped me, and I, I felt that I absorbed a great deal of sadness that was still lingering in the earth some decades and decades uh, after, um, you know, the slaves uh, had uh, left the property. But um, they say that uh, sometimes the land has a memory, and I, I definitely felt it. So I just wanted to uh, congratulate you again on an excellent work. Um, I'm on my third or fourth reading of your book, and I can't put it down. And I want to uh, wish uh, you the best uh, in the future. And uh, thank you, uh, Ms. Bennett, uh, for having Dr. Lemon on. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another caller, and this is area code 917. Do you have a question or a comment? Area code 917. Yes, uh, I do have a comment. This is uh, actually Morgan Muncy, uh, uh, Dr. Lemon's cousin. <laughs> I am so proud of you. I think the whole family is very proud of you. You actually put uh, Southampton County back on the mark on the map uh, in a good way, and uh, uh, we're very, very proud. That's all I wanted to really say. Uh, um, uh, it's a pleasure, you know, having this book now kind of documented in the family. Um, and I, I think you're. Uh, I think Cornelius and Martha Jane and the whole whole group of those ancestors there are just cheering you on. Oh, thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. And we have one more question or comment. Area code 504, do you have a question or comment? 504. Yes. Do you have a question or comment? Never. Okay, I'm not sure we didn't get a question or a comment. Well, we're close to the end of the show, and I just want to know if you have any any parting words that you want to share with the listeners tonight before we close out. Yes, I, I would say that this this writing this the story um, was a process that that changed me. Um, and um, it, it changed me for, for a couple of profound reasons. Um, you know, like a lot of people of mixed ancestry, um, I never was able to accept my, my white heritage uh, before um, because I, I knew how they became relatives of mine through, through conquest or, or, or rape or, or, or slavery. Um, and uh, that was always very difficult for, for me to accept. In fact, I, I didn't accept it. Uh, but in doing my research, I was able to connect with uh, a, a white descendant of, of the Ridley family, uh, Bromfield uh, Nichol, who was co-author of their uh, volume of genealogy uh, called Ridley of Southampton. And, and, and he and I uh, just struck up this really wonderful uh, relationship. And, um, and, I, and I also, going back uh, you know, to Southampton County and, and attending the old Ridley Church with uh, my cousin Morgan, um, I got the most wonderful letter back uh, from the church. And, and they said, uh, you know, on behalf of the descendants of Jordan Ridley, we believe you are family. And uh, that, that was about the highest praise I think uh, I could have ever uh, received. So, uh, you know, this this whole uh, backstory of, of finding my way back home and, and 
uh, you know, being recognized by, by my white ancestors or descendant of my white ancestors, who was never a slaveholder, uh, and I was never a slave, but, but you know, here's this descendant of, of these two families um, recognizing our bond of scholarship and family and kinship. Uh, I, I just think that's, uh, that's what life should be about, you know, overcoming our differences and recognizing that we're all members of one human family. Oh, that's that, and that, and that is beautiful. Well, everyone, remember the name of this book. It is a wonderful book, and just as the caller said that he read, he is on his fourth read. I'm on my third read, and so remember the book is "Go Stand Upon the Rock" by Dr. Samuel Michael Lemon. This is a wonderful Christmas present if you want to just sit and read and just imagine and see everything just come before you uh, as if you're there reliving everything this family is going through, please uh, consider buying Go Up on the Rock. So thank you so much for joining the show tonight. Well, thank you so I much, just like to, Yes, and everyone, there will not be a show next week. I want everyone to just enjoy your Thanksgiving. Spend that time with your family and give Thanks. Thanks to your ancestors. Thanks to the people who are in your face right now that you love so dear. And then tune in next in December, and I will have the lineup for December for all of you to see. So good night, everybody, and thank you so much, uh, Samuel. Uh, thank thank, you. thank you. you so much. And Thank you. And just remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Even those oral histories, they're so wonderful. Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and, of course, research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond, and the Afrogenia's Facebook pages, and remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Well, thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me, not next week, but in two weeks. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Good night, everyone.